bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. Whether he is a bondservant or is free, masters do the same to them and stop your threatening. Know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no impartiality with him. I'll read that last line again. That's what Sam's preaching on today. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. So, it's so good to be with you. I, I want to par- ask for your pardon. I, I, I would like to pray because um, there are some people who were supposed to be here earlier who, who are not here. And I just have some, maybe, maybe a sense that something's wrong. And would you just pray even though you don't know who they are? Father, thank you that we get to be together as a family. And I love my family. And I love that we've become so much of a family that when we miss the body, we can feel the ache of it. People at our church are not just cogs in the wheel, members who can give money or whatever it is. We, they're deeply ingrained into our hearts and in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, guys. So, you know, a lot of people wrestled their whole lives trying to figure out what's their calling, their vocation, what are they made to do, what, what, what on earth did God put me on this earth for? I actually have had the blessing of knowing that since I was 15. So I was blessed at a young age to know. And when I became a Christian, about eight months later, I saw a few people who were very anti Christ, not they're anti-Christ, but they're anti, anti-Christianity, very hardened towards God, come to Jesus. And I remember seeing them just collapse into a pastor's arms, weeping and, and praying. And I remember seeing that during a, a service at a conference, and I went into the corner overwhelmed with emotion and just started bawling. And a lot of you guys who know my story know, know this, and, and it's, it's not the kind of bawling you do when it's polite, it's the ugly crying, you know, the ugly crying that you don't want anyone to see you because your whole face is distorted and there's snot everywhere and it's, it's not a good place to be. Um, and, and I remember saying to myself, as a 15-year-old, saying, that's what it's all about, that's what it's all about, that's what I, give, what, what I want to give my life for. I want to give my life to so that so, pe- so others would know Jesus more and to delight in him and, and, and serve him. And, and shortly after that, I decided that to do that well would be, I should be a pastor. But from 8, 15 till 30, I, I wasn't an actual pastor. I was a youth pastor and I served in pastoral roles and so forth, but I wasn't actually a pastor. And so 
I, I was in this in-between. Do you guys know what the in-between is? You know, maybe you're, you're a barista and, and you don't think that's going to be your life calling and you want to do something else and, and you're in Hollywood and you're, you want to actually be on the big screens but you're doing, you know, waiting tables or whatever, the in-between. And, and so I did a number of jobs. I had so many jobs for over the last 15 years. And the tension was feeling that the jobs were just a means to a, another job, a stepping stone. You know what I'm saying? Like, and I would make sure, you know, whether I was driving Uber or Lyft or waiting tables or doing something, making sure, like, this is not really what I'm about to do. I'm in between. No, I'm trying to get to something else, right? Because I felt almost a sense of uh, inadequacy. I felt like I wasn't good enough or, or that people would judge me that my ambitions were too small. And so maybe you have felt that. Maybe you're kind of the in between. You're not where you want to be. Or maybe you are where you thought you want to be. And it's not what you thought it'd be. And so maybe you pondered some of these questions and maybe thinking maybe work is just a means to make money and put food on the table so that I can go home and do what I really want to do. Or wait just for the weekends so I can do all the great things that I really want to do. And I wrestled over the years, does work really matter? The only thing that matters is pastoring. Everything else is not that important. Or... A deeper question for all of us is how can I, if you're a Christian, follower of Jesus, how can I glorify God with my work? How do I make it eternally valuable? And if you're not a Christian, maybe you wonder, maybe you grew up in a household where you saw the nine to five grind of your parents, the, the wake up, groggy, go to work, gripe about work, come home, collapse on the couch, repeat, cycle, do something maybe fun on the weekends, and you see that cycle from your family and say, I, I want something better than that. There's got to be something better than just this, this, this grind of just work to get up to do things that you don't want to do so that when the weekends you can kind of do the things you want to do and so forth. And so we're continuing this little mini-series on work that we've been in in Ephesians 6, 5 through 9. I want to highlight a few helpful books. There's going to be three slides of showing three books because as I've been working through this for the last couple of weeks, I felt a deep sense of inadequacy and that I didn't want to preach a three-hour sermon. And so because of that, I want to highlight three books that should be coming up eventually. So one book called Garden City, um, highly recommend it. This would be my number one, Help You Think. I, I love the subtitle. I, I can't read it here, but it's, it's a good subtitle. <laughs> And, um, and so this would be a great one. Really good writer, really accessible, understandable. The next one would be one for those who, um, men and women, but probably more women, but those who are at home full time with kids. Um, and how does that work, that mundane sense of changing diapers and cleaning, how does that matter to God? Why is that valuable? That could be a really great resource. And the third one, this is kind of like the, the famous one called Every Good Endeavor. And um, by Timothy Keller, very, very helpful book, Understanding. And, and if you are in the workplace, not, um, not being a pastor or so forth, I would really recommend to take long seasons to really think about how can your work matter. These sermons are not enough. And so t- take some time through some of these books. And if you want to talk more, I'd be happy to sit down and talk more. So here's the, the big driving question. How do I serve God with my work? Okay, how do I serve God with my work? Keller in his book highlights a couple of different options of ways we serve God with their work. And there's lots of different 
potential reasons behind why we work and what God wants to do. And here are a few of them. There's a list of them. And this is highly debated, actually. This is crazy debated. Here's one. Um, the way to serve God with my work is to further social justice in the world. Or it's to, to be personally honest and evangelize your colleagues. Or it's just to do skillful, excellent work. Or it's to create beauty. Or it's to engage and influence culture for the glory of God. Or it's to work with a grateful, joyful, gospel change heart through all the ups and downs. Or it's to make as much money as you can so that you can be as generous as you can. So these are all different kind of theories of why God wants us to work. And I would say all of them have truth to them. But I think all of us kind of wonder, like, so what, what really is the thing? Why do we do this? And so that's why we're going to press into God's Word. We're going to start in verse 9. And then we're going to do a launch. We're going to launch into just this full um, journey through God's story. And what is God doing with work? From Genesis to Revelation, this whole picture. And what is His purposes? And that's how we're going to land. So Ephesians 6 verse 9. And masters, treat your slaves. Real quick, if you have questions about slaves, I did a small teaching on slaves and why, um, what, what God thinks about slaves and what, what Paul's trying to do last sermon, if you want to check that out. So, and masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Notice this phrase, in the same way. In the same way. This phrase makes everything that Paul just addressed to the slaves now applicable to the masters. Okay? When he says, in the same way. So as I've been saying all this stuff to the slaves, masters, in the same heart, in the same manner. Now, it's not going to be exactly the same because they're in different roles, but the same kind of attitude and heart will be the same that God wants for the masters as what he just said for the slaves which is hugely important. We're going to talk more about it. But last week, we talked about this. What were the attitudes of heart that he highlighted for the slaves? Well, here's some. Whatever you do, do it with all of your heart as if you're doing it for Christ. We also talked about you can transfer bosses without transferring your job because Jesus is your boss, no matter what you do. No matter how mundane or how high or whatever it is, your boss is Jesus. And third, depending on who your boss is, deeply matters. It creates great dignity and value in your work. And so if you're in here and you do something that's more menial and looked down upon in our culture, if you're doing it for Jesus, it has great dignity because you're doing it for the master of the universe. And so we used the illustration last week for Benjamin who makes smoothies right now. And it has great value because he's doing it for Jesus. And if you're making a smoothie for Jesus, who else could you make it for? And I'm going to get back on picking on you later, all right? And now, Paul is addressing the employers or masters, and then now for our context, employers. And so, if he says in the same way, it means that employers, so any of you guys who have people who, who answer to you, you need to care for them, lead them, supervise them with respect and fear. Why? Because you're going to have to answer to an ultimate supervisor, the ultimate boss. Sincerely, because you're doing it for Christ. Wholeheartedly, because you're doing it for Christ. Expectantly, because one day, no matter how much you are appreciated by those who 
listen to you or don't listen to you or your upper management, you're finally, your ultimate reward is going to be in heaven with Christ. Now, look at this second phrase in verse 9. You know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. There's no favoritism with him. This is powerful because in our culture and in their culture, there is definitely one-upping each other all the time. Oh, who's your dad? Oh, you're, you're from that family? Oh, you're from that part of town? Or you did this kind of job? There's constantly comparisons between your class and where you're at. And so what Paul is doing with this line is absolute flattening all the distinctions that we love to make. Now, you hate to make it if you're at the bottom, but if you're at the top, you love to make the distinctions. And he's saying, no matter where you're at, I'm going to flatten it. Everyone has to answer, and he doesn't care. He's not impressive to the president. He's not impressive to the janitor. It's all the same to him, and he cares about the heart. It's a beautiful thing. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that God doesn't care about class? Aren't you glad that he doesn't play favorites like that? Because if he did, then you and I, our worth and value and our importance would be based on who our parents are or what kind of skin color we may be. It just depends on what part of the world you are and what part of history you are. It deeply stinks. <laughs> Thank God that we have a God who doesn't care about that. I, I, I just highlighted that for a second because I feel like if you've been around church enough, you've heard that enough, that doesn't matter to you. But do you realize that there are certain religions where if you're not a certain background, you're not that valuable? Isn't it amazing? We all come to the same cross. We all come and receive, and we, we get to be all loved by the same master and savior of the universe. Isn't that great? Amen? All right, we got one visitor who's praising God with us. So good to have you. Now, that was quick. We just sprinted through verse 9, and now I'm going to launch into a bigger picture of what is God doing with work throughout the whole Bible. So the rest of the sermon is, is not talking about verse 9 or Ephesians really at all, okay? This is an excuse to talk about work more and understanding how we can do God's work, um, how God does his work through our work, okay? So we're going to start with the story Before we jump into the story, we want to talk about worldview, okay? A lot of you guys may have heard this term, worldview. Let me just clarify. Worldview is basically whatever this lens that all of us wear, and it's the way we see this, the world, the way we see life. It's the system that we have bought into, whether intentionally or unintentionally, that colors everything we see. And so let me explain. Every worldview will answer at least four questions. It's going to answer many more questions, but you can see it on the screen. Here are four. And um, do you mind if I get a little bit more of my mic? I think I'm, I usually lose my voice at the end of the sermon. I feel like I'm going to lose it in the first ten, so I'll make a record. All right. Am I a little louder? Am I on? Am I on? Okay, good. Great. All right. So one of the questions that the your world, every world review will answer, attempt to answer at least, is one, is how should the world be? Number two, it's what's wrong with the world? Number three, what's the solution? And number four is what, what, what do I play in it? What part do I play in this whole story? Okay? These aren't the only four questions, but every worldview will answer or attempt to answer these four questions. And so as we go through the story of God, the, the, the story that God's writing, let's ask, okay, how does how, do, how does God answer these four questions specifically regarding to work? 
So let's start from the beginning. We're going to start in four stages, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Okay? Start in creation. So in the beginning, God created the world, and he called it good, and he delighted in it. And look at verse 31 in chapter 1 in Genesis. Genesis 1.31. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Thus, the heavens and the earth were completed in their vast array. Verse 2, by the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. So let me ask you a very basic question if you were listening. Who was the first person to do any work? God. God's the first person to do any work. God, in fact, was the first person, and he was like a farmer, like a gardener. Occupations that many uppity people would frown on and look down on. But the first farmer, the first person to work with their figurative hands is God. That's significant. And the word here used in in the Hebrew for work is the common word that's used throughout the Old Testament the other ways it's used is business, craft, job, task, occupation, all kinds of work, job, language. And the first person that's attributed with that language for work, job, task, business is God. God is the first person to work. And it's also interesting that in chapter 2, verse 15, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work and to take care of it. So, in the beginning, the first person to work is God. And then immediately after, he makes man and he tasks man to also work. This word is different in Hebrew, but it also, throughout the whole Old Testament, is used for work and service over and over again. So, God works and man works. And he tasked man to cultivate the garden, to take the raw materials and do greater things with it, to spread the dominion that he has in the garden, this this beautiful paradise garden. He wants him to spread it and to subdue the rest of the world. And it was designed to, to, to start here and just start to expand. And the more and more he does the work in the garden, the more and more the world is able to see what Things ought to be. And so the first question that the worldview question that I talked about earlier is, how should the world be? Well, the world should be good. Should be good. Should be right. And part of a good world is that God and man is, are working. Okay? And the reason why I'm highlighting this is because I think all of us have maybe a sense that work is a bad thing. It's Sunday, so tomorrow is Monday. And people are all like, oh, I got a case of the Mondays. Why? Because I'm at work. I hate work, right? Like, in general, work is a derogatory term. <laughs> like, people just have a negative sense about work for the most part. Some people are exceptions. But then we see this world, this good world, and something happens. Act two, or stage two. It's called the fall. Man rejects God. And this is where we see the worldview question too. What's wrong with the world? So man rejects God, desires to be God in some way, wants control, wants autonomy, wants to call his own shots like 
all of us. And then as a result, man is separated from God. Most importantly, he's separated from God. His delight, his presence, relationship is severed. And the whole world is cursed. And everything that once was good is now twisted and tainted in some way. Although good, it's twisted. And until all things are made right, humans, we have a complicated relationship with work. Work is cursed, but it's not a curse. You follow me? It's not inherently a curse, but it's been cursed. So we have a complicated relationship with it. So we got two ditches when we talk about work. We got work as a curse, where many of us may view it as a necessary evil. They don't like it. We got to do it. When we go day to day, we're bored of tears. It's the same old grind, the same old drudgery, no meaning, no sense, no accomplishment. We call it a rat race, drawing our breath, drawing our salary. Right? This is the case for so many. And then the other ditch is work is life. Work is life. Some people say stuff like ball is life, basketball is life. Work is life. Some people just work in order to live, but some people work is life. It's everything. It's their self-fulfillment. It's their identity. It's their purpose. If they don't have work, they have nothing. It gives them a sense of value and importance and identity. And so because we understand that God originally made work and it was good, we can say that work is curse, but it's not a curse. And by God's grace, we can work, we can utilize work for good, even on this side of eternity. And then there's act three, stage three, redemption. So although creation has fallen and work has been cursed and suffering abounds, there is a greater problem, as many of you know. The greatest problem is not that there's sickness in the world or that my wife is sick right now, second week in a row, or that there's orphans in the world or all the kind of atrocities in the world and social injustices in the world. The greatest problem in the world is that because man has rejected God, our great father Adam and mother Eve rejected God and all of us have fallen in their path, rejecting God, wanting our own autonomy and our own rule, we have severed our relationship from life itself. We were supposed to be the vice regents. We were supposed to be part of the business, co-creators with him. And yet, in our rejection of him, we have made the God of the universe our enemy. We have separated ourselves from joy itself, purpose itself. And this God is inflexibly just. He's inflexibly just. Laws have been broken. Wrongs have been done. And something must happen. Someone must pay the penalty. But yet, this God is also has unfathomable love. He's inflexibly just, but he's unfathomable in his love. And because he's so full of love, he must do something. Part of him says, I must punish those who've rejected me because that is right. And then a part of him says, I must save them because I love them. God has this complicated wrestle inside, and so he created a great plan to both satisfy his love and his justice. And at the cross, love and justice kiss. Love and justice embrace. None of them limited. Both of them to the full. And so this God sent his son who was willing to die for us. He lived the life that we should have lived. He worked as we should work. He had an occupation. And he died and he accomplished the greatest work ever. 
the greatest work on the cross, and he took the full wrath and penalty that Sam Choi deserved, rightly, that all of us rightly deserved on the cross. And so that 15 years ago, I said, Jesus, have mercy upon me, a sinner. I said, I want you. I want you. I'm sick of living this life without you. And Jesus said, I'll have you. And that's the beautiful news of the gospel is that no matter how dark your past is, and no matter how red your, your, your clothing is from stains of sin and shame, Jesus will have you. And he's made a way. He's made a way. And so if you want him, you can have him. So I just want to have a little aside in the sermon. If you want to have him, you can have him. You must simply repent of your sins and trust in him and he'll have you. We'd love to talk to you more about what it means to follow him. But you're not going to just have a new relationship, but a new identity, a new family, a new purpose. And so here's the worldview question three answered. What is the solution? Jesus. Jesus is the solution. He's solution. He's the solution to our greatest problem, our division between God and man. But he's also the solution to all the brokenness that I just mentioned. He's solution to all the poverty and the sickness and the evil in this world. And when he comes back, he will right every wrong. And I don't know if you've thought about Jesus' return today. But I do know that every one of you probably thought today that something is not right. Maybe you woke up and you felt tired even though you slept. Or you had an ache. Or you got a phone call and it was bad. Every one of us have probably felt the results of this world is not as it ought to be. That it's fallen, it's broken, it's incomplete. And the good news is that Jesus will right every wrong. And it's not going to be like, oh, it's no, not bad anymore. It's going to be amazing. Extremely full of joy. Everything bad will not just be made right. It will abound with goodness. And he'll bring wholeness where there's brokenness. He'll bring healing where there's sickness. All things will be made right. That's where we enter stage four, redemption. Where Jesus returns and he, on this earth, he makes all things new. He redeems this earth. He doesn't take us up to this heaven where we're all floating around like in gravity, like we're in space, but, but we get to be with him on this earth and he's going to make it right and good and redeem. But then the question that, hey, will work end with Jesus' return? Will work end when Jesus returns? Look at Revelation 22.3. There's a hint here that we'll still be doing something. Look, no longer will there be any curse. Can I get an Amen. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. So there's some idea of serving, serving of him, working for him. I like this quote by Randy Alcorn. He says this, Because work began before sin and the curse, and because God, who is without sin, is a worker, we should assume human beings will work on the new earth. We'll have satisfying and enriching work that we can't wait to get back to. Work that will never be a drudgery. Amen? That's so good. Have you guys ever had those moments where you do work and it's so satisfying? It's like, ah, oh, job well done. And like, maybe, maybe you're a dude and you mowed a lawn on the summer and then you drink a beer afterwards. And you're like, yeah, that was good, right? There's a satisfaction to that work. But yet there's days where after we finish work, we're just like, oh my gosh, I hate life, my, my life and I hate work. And, and so you'll never have that. Isn't that great? That work will just be a joy. It will just be satisfying. No more toy, toil, only purpose. So then the worldview question four comes up is what's our part in all this? 
So if you saw in the beginning, God, God works and then we work. And so right in the beginning, God likes for, to partner with us, even though we're so us. He likes to partner with us. He said, I want to do something. I'm going to do it through people. And so he wants us to spread his image, his reign, his likeness all throughout the world in the way we work, in the way we live. And there's a lot to unpack on this whole idea of like this creation mandate and so forth. But the big point I want to highlight is that God wants to do his work through you. And throughout the whole Bible, you see that he could just do anything he wants. Like, boom, everyone's saved. Boom, everyone's healed. But he likes doing it through instruments, through people. He wants to, he lets us be part of his process and he invites us in. And so here's the question. How can we serve God with our work? How can we serve the Lord with our work? I want to I invite you into an image. And I'm going to drink some water because my throat is going. Imagine you are walking into a bookstore and you see a book that is a bestseller. It's at the, it's, you know, there's a, there's a huge like display. And the title of the book is Called to Serve the Lord. Called to Serve the Lord. What would you think that book's about? You'd probably think it's about somebody who left their regular job and went to ministry or to missions, right? That's what I would probably think. Oh, man, who, who's this guy? What did they do? Why'd they leave, right? And this is what Tim Keller says. I'm, I'm totally ripping this off from him. <laughs> do you know why you and I would probably think that? It's because we don't have a biblical view of work. That's supposed to be a startling statement. It is a startling statement. As soon as you and I think of serving the Lord, called to serve the Lord, right away we say, it doesn't mean farming. It doesn't mean pushing a broom. It doesn't mean accounting or adding up numbers or engineering or working at an insurance company. It doesn't mean any of that. Called to serve the Lord, what, what kind of, who are you preaching to? What mission field are you going to? Keller says this, no, you're wrong. Because here's what Paul is saying. He's talking, this is, he's, he's talking about Ephesians chapter 6, 5 through 9. He's talking domestic servants. And he says that when they serve their masters, they're serving the Lord. And what are they doing? They're pushing brooms. They're doing menial work. And yet, Paul calls that serving the Lord. This is a calling from God, y'all. You have been called to serve God. And so, no matter who you are in here, you are called to serve the Lord. You are called to serve the Lord in everything that you do. And he will take it as a blessing to himself if you do it to him. So what are, the, what are God's purposes for our work? There are three that I want to highlight. There's more, but these are three. Number one, he wants to display himself with his work. With our work, he wants to display himself. God is the first worker, so he created the world and he called it good, and so now he charges us to work. And so when we work the way we work, we give the world a picture of what he's like. So how does God work? Well, when you look at the creation, we, you look at the world, beautiful, excellent, smart, innovative, caring. Like that's the kind of work that God makes in the way he does it. Check out Psalm 19.1, pretty popular passage. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. So what is the psalmist saying? Saying that the world, when you look at nature and you look at all the different things in the world, it declares the glory of God. 
when you look at the beauty of it, to look at the, the majesty of it, the greatness of it, it tells you something about what God is like. And so when we work, we have an opportunity to give the world a picture of what he's like. And as a Christian, you, have a, you give the world an opportunity to what Christ is like. And so here's a question to ask all of you. hope you hear me and you just don't listen. Do you do your work in such a way that gives people an accurate picture of what God's like? Do you do your work in such a way that gives the world an accurate picture of what God is like? And so back on picking on Benjamin. So I hope Benjamin, he just started this job at LA Fitness, is that you make the best smoothies with the, with the ingredients they gave you, because you're probably limited by that, that people would get these smoothies and be like, this is the greatest smoothie I've ever had at this club. And they see the way you care about it, and you're giving them a picture of what God is like when he cares for us, and he creates things. And, and as people drink, have you guys ever had a drink before that you say to yourself, there is a God, right? Like, and he loves me. He is good. And you have to worship or you eat some food that it just takes you to another, the third heaven, and you're like, oh my goodness, Jesus is good. He loves me in this fallen world. There is good in this world, right? And I hope that Benjamin or any of you who do any kind of service job or any kind of job at all, that you create your work or you do your work in such a way and manner that people are like, oh my goodness, that is unusual. You're pointing to God in all that you do, even in the mundane See, I hope that we work in such a way that people walk away from us, supervisors, other coworkers, or customers, or so forth, and say, I wish more people were like you. If, if there were more people like you, this world would be a different place. That's the kind of work we want to do. And, and you know, for the midweek podcast, we're going to do one this week. I know we haven't done it lately. We're going to talk a lot about vocation. How do you know your, what your calling is? I wanted to cram it in here, but again, three-hour sermons don't really fly well with most people. Okay, so in the mid, midweek podcast, we're going to talk more about how do you find your calling. But you, you guys know what it's like when you see someone in their element. Maybe you've seen someone not in their element, and all of a sudden you like see them outside and in their element. You're like, it is a beautiful thing when someone's in their zone doing what they're created to do, and it's a beautiful thing, and it points to the glory of God if it's done a certain way. And I said this last week, and I want to say it again. Dear Christian, outside of rare circumstances, if you obey this passage 5 through 9 with all of your heart, doing it with, without eye service or with, with sincerity, you should be one of the best workers that your job has ever seen. You may be limited in talent, but at least in your attitude and your effort, you should be in the Hall of Fame. You should want your boss to say, I wish more were like you. Maybe you're not even gifted. Maybe you're not very competent. And for whatever reason, you have de- developmental challenges or whatever. And they say, you know what? You're, I, I'll take 10 of you more than all the other gifted people because of your heart and your attitude. We should be like that. And the reason why I said last week is that you have more reasons to work because you're doing it for Jesus. You have more power because you have the spirit than any of your coworkers. And you have more support because you have the church. There's no reason why we shouldn't be smoking everybody else when it comes to our effort and our attitude and our manner. So here's the second. So your work has the power to display the character of God with other people. Whatever you create or the way you create or the way you do it. 
Number two, here's the second purpose that I want to highlight, the general good of all people. We have to establish a theological concept some people call common grace. Don't worry about the title, just worry about the content. Common grace. Common grace is a term we use when we talk about God's general grace and blessing and goodness he does to all people, no matter if they're a Christian or, or not. All good gifts that people get. So here are two passages that show that in the Bible. Matthew five forty-five. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. What is he saying there? He's saying, hey, even if you're a wicked farmer and you're terrible to people, you're still getting sun. You're still getting water. He's still kind to you in giving you these graces, even though you don't deserve it. And he does the same for the righteous person. Look at Acts 14, verse 17. Yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your heart with joy. So despite the fall in our rebellion against the rightful king, he still lets Christians or non-Christians enjoy good gifts. Romance, good food. And although peppered with brokenness and pain, you still get to enjoy lots of good gifts. And so this doctrine, this theology called common grace is just God's general kindness towards all people no matter what, who, no matter who they are, even in this brokenness. And so let me apply that. Your job can be a blessing to people. It can be used as common grace for others. Your job can do that. Okay? And so your job, look at Psalm 145, verse 15 through 16. Let me show you how this applies. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. Martin Luther has this whole teaching about this passage, and he says this question. He, he just asks simply, how does God give us food? Because in here it says that he gives us food. So how does he give us food? Did you just get that bread or milk because all of a sudden it was on your table or in your belly? Or did it just appear somewhere in your house? Great, food. No, 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 no. How does God give us food? He uses the farmer. And he says the milkmaid. I don't think they're milkmaids these days, right? He, get, he uses the milkmaid and the people who transport it to the grocer. And he uses all these different people, this, this chain of people working to provide you bread or provide you milk or whatever, or if you're lactose intolerant, provide you soy milk or whatever it is, right? It didn't just appear. He uses means. He uses people. He partners with people to provide our needs. And so no matter if it's a menial task, mundane task, it's God's work. And he feeds us directly, indirectly, through farmers and milkmaids and such. Check out this quote from Martin Luther. Our works are God's mass, behind which he remains hidden, although he does everything. That's good. And so your work, no matter what it is, is way that God can bless others. So for those of you here who work with insurance, actually you're not here. <laughs> There's like three of you, but they're not here right now. Let's say they were here. You're a gift to God, gift of God to me by helping me with my insurance and so forth. And I could go on and on. I, I know every, what everyone does, every member. I know what you guys do, and you guys can be a common grace to all people, whether a Christian or not. And this also goes for homemakers, for parents. I remember today, as you guys know, Joanna's sick, 
And so I was up setting a, a very, very, very nutritious breakfast of cereal for my kids. And I was thinking about this sermon. And I was thinking, hey, I'm doing God's work right now. As I poured the cereal, it was organic milk, okay? So as I, as I gave them the cereal, I was like, I'm doing God's work. And I felt pleasure. And I feel a great pleasure preaching. I love preaching. I love serving you guys with word. I love preparing um, the messages for you. And I feel a sense of God's pleasure that I'm serving you and I'm using my gifts. But you know what? I felt that this morning too, putting down some bowls of cereal and saying, kids, eat this. I'm going to be in the other room working on my sermon. <laughs> but I felt pleasure in doing that. And you can feel that same pleasure too if you let it happen, if you let your heart do it unto God and do it as an extension of his hands of mercy. And so spouses or friends, as you serve others, you can serve them and say, I'm doing God's work right now. I'm serving the Lord. And if they're a Christian, as you, if you see in Matthew 25, whatever you do to the least of these people, if you do it Christian, you do it unto Jesus himself. He takes it, he, he has unified himself with us so that if you bless me, you're blessing him and vice versa. But a huge challenge we have to grasp this reality is this idea of the secular and sacred divide. Have you heard this before? The sacred and secular divide. And so as Christians, we, we affirm that Jesus is Lord over everything. But somehow we start compartmentalizing him. So what we do is we start categorizing things in life like, okay, so this right here is secular, so it's not as important spiritually, not significant, and this right here is spiritual. So right now what we're doing right now is spiritual, and God's super pleased. But like later, if you guys go eat, have a meal with friends, that's secular, and it's not important. And w- what we see in the Bible is that it just totally destroys all that and says everything is sacred. Everything is sacred. Everything is blessed if we do it in the right manner. Not sin, right? Let's just be clear, okay? I'm hoping you fill in some gaps right here as I say that, right? But everything is, and so as right now I'm preaching, this is a very sacred thing, and later I'm gonna have a meal, and I'm going to pick some up from the airport so I may get some fast food. And even then, in my cold car, eating fast food, it's sacred, right? God provided this food, and I'm grateful, and I can do it worshipfully, right? We have this dangerous thing where we make certain things like Super Bowl, oh, that's secular, right? And, and it can be often secular the way you do it, or, or it can be sacred. And so what we have, the problem is, we have some people who, they they have their boss here and their job over there, and then their spiritual life over here. So they work like 40 or 50 hours doing their, they they, they clock in or they punch in, and and they do do their secular work here, and then later they give their crumbs and and, and they try to do some spiritual work here. Kind of commuting back and forth between secular and sacred work, and, and feeling like when they're here doing the secular work, God's not really pleased, God's not really happy with them, they're not doing anything significant. And then they move over here. Oh, Bible study. Oh, small group or whatever it is. Now God's pleased. No, 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 no. He can be pleased in all that you do. And this is so important. And even though you may know this, chances are you're not living this. Because the secular sacred divide is deeply ingrained in our culture. We love compartmentalizing. We love saying this is Jesus's and the rest is mine. Right? That's how we view money too. Like, hey, I'll give my 10% tithe or 8% or whatever, and the rest is mine. I can do whatever I want, right? We love compartmentalizing, putting God in certain boxes, and that's why we really need to ask God to break them all down. Jesus is Lord over everything. Everything can be sacred. Now, I want to be careful. Not everything is equally valuable. 
right? So you could watch Netflix to the glory of God, but that, I'm not saying that's equally as eternally valuable as spending time serving someone. Okay, let, let's just be clear. Some people take the secular as sacred and they just totally just misunderstand and they just think, every, and so they never t- spend time with Jesus. They're like, everything is sa- it's sacred, right? And they just do whatever they want to do and they don't give a rip about anybody. And it's all sacred, right? No, so you need to be mature as you think through it too. So let's talk to you. I love this one quote from this one pastor. I don't even know who wrote it, but it's this. Christianity is not a way of doing certain things. It is a certain way of doing all things. Isn't that great? Christianity is not a way of doing certain things, like Bible study, prayer, and, and, but it's a certain way of doing all things. The Christian worldview, Jesus' lordship, peppers and explain, it, it influences every little thing you do, whether you eat, drink, all that you do. Jesus infiltrates all of it. So here's another application. If you want to be a blessing to other people, give, be a common grace to other people, here's one simple thing to do. Be competent in your work. Be competent. So Keller has this great illustration. He says, what does the Christian pilot, what, what do the passengers need for, from the Christian pilot? Do they need him to, hey, sorry to interrupt your flight, but I want to tell you about Jesus. Do you have peace with God, right? Is that what they need? Now, they, they probably do need that at some level from somebody, but Keller simply says, They need him to land the plane. They need him to be a good pilot. They need to get them there alive. And so at a very, very simple level, how do you glorify God with your work and be a blessing to other people with your work? Do your job well. Now, in the podcast midweek, I want to talk about doing your job exceptionally and how to be exceptional in your work. That's going to take a longer talk, so check out the midweek. So that's just one bare minimum thing. There's more to be said here. Let's go to the third one, okay? Finally, your work is purposed by God to disciple all people. So the third is disciple all people. We're the discipleship of all people. Here are three points to make regarding this, okay? You can do your work to disciple people through using your work as a missionary outpost. Number two, you could explicitly in your work make disciples, like what I do. Or three, you can use business as missions. Or in other words, BAM. Okay, I'll tell you, we'll get there in a second. Okay, number one, using your job as a missionary outpost. This is one of the most common ways people think about work. Those who have not thought about work and its value and how it's sacred and God can be pleased and you can be a blessing, you would serve God through it. Some people, even those people who think that, at minimum they say, hey, use your work as a way to connect with unbelievers. Share the gospel with them. Amen. Still do that. It is a missionary outpost. Wherever you work, God has you. And isn't it amazing that even though we have a small church, there are so many other gospel-preaching churches that love Christ. And, and God, uh, have you guys ever seen one of those FBI boards where they have like pins here, pins here, and like lines everywhere? God has one of those, right, in his mind, right? And, and it's huge. And he has, oh, I have this person working at this place, and I have this person working. And he has this intricate, beautiful plan, strategically putting missionaries at every outpost so that you can be the hands and feet of Jesus in the light of and, and spread Christ's light. And so even if you are working a mundane job, feel the weight and the calling and the purpose and the destiny that God has placed you there as a missionary. He's put you there. And, and, and maybe what you play, the part you play, doesn't seem very significant. But if you could step back and see all that he sees, it's super significant as he's putting everyone in the right places, all working together for a greater 
vision that he has for the cities and beyond. And it's a beautiful thing. You get to spend time with people over and over again. You know, I, I'm a big fan of us going to share the gospel with people that you've never met before. So maybe you're flying with someone, you're like, hey, and you can start talking. I'm a big fan of that. But you know what? I miss the times that I used to work because the job that I have right now, I have to like kind of awkwardly go out of my way to hang out with unbelievers. I miss the times I worked with my unbelieving friends all the time. All the, all the interactions, all the days where you can see them in the highs and lows, all the opportunities to, to love them and to show Christ to them. What a gift you have if you are working in the workplace. Now, I want to make a quick nuance about last week's statement. I discourage you from sharing the gospel on the job when you're on the clock unless the Holy Spirit is specifically calling you to no matter the circumstances. Because I believe that's a dishonoring of your boss and your workplace if while you're supposed to be doing a certain work, you're not doing that work and you're still going to get paid and you're going to tell people about Jesus. Now, one thing that Ross shared with me that was good for me to remember is that some, work, some jobs that I used to work at, it's fine to just hang out and talk. Like it's part of the rhythm of the work. And so there's just natural conversation. Man, share, gospel, share the gospel. I just want to be careful. I'm not saying don't share the gospel. I'm just saying you want to make sure you're, you are honoring those who are paying you to make sure you're actually doing the work they're paying you for and not the whole time just sharing the gospel and not doing any work because that is a bad witness for Jesus. Does, does that make sense? Hopefully that's a helpful nuance from last week. I, I don't want you to walk away spineless and not sharing the gospel because you're afraid of consequences. It's not about consequences. It's about honoring people who are paying you and you're being, a, you're being um, up, upright in your, in your work. Here's the second thing you can do with work. You can do direct disciple making. And so maybe you can be a, a pastor or a missionary and just directly give your life or work for campus outreach and make disciples with your job. Number three, this is one that I, I'm really passionate about. It's called Business as Missions. It goes by other names. It's been around for a number of years. But maybe a way to set it up for you to understand it a little better is, is this. This is a way to kind of think about the oddity of missionaries. And if you think about missionaries, I, I know a number of guys who, who try to plant a church in the Twin Cities and they come from another state. And so they have all this money coming in from big churches supporting them. And all day long, they just like hang out at coffee shops and they're just strange to people. People are like, what do you do? Like, who are you? And well, I'm a missionary here, right? Now, help, help, let me help you feel the oddity of that. Imagine in your neighborhood, a Muslim family moves into your neighborhood. Okay? They have all the things you need. They have the car and everything. And, and, and they seem very nice. And something that strikes you funny is that they seem to never do anything. They never go to work. They're always around hanging out. And one day you talk to them and say, hey, what's, what, you know, what, what are you about? What are you guys doing here? What, what brought you here? And they say, oh, well, I'm a, I'm a Muslim missionary. Would that unnerve you? See, that's what, what many missions do across the world. Like people will move over to a place and they have all this funding coming from the states, and they're just like hanging out all the time, and people are like, what are you doing here? And they're like, oh, I'm a Christian missionary. And they're like, whoa, like, don't get around me. And so there's a beautiful movement that especially is helpful for closed nations that you can't go as a missionary, where you go, and, and so imagine this. Instead of going to Bible college for years, or maybe you do a couple years of Bible college to make sure you know your word and know Jesus, you get a business degree or an engineering degree, and you go overseas with a team of other people, and you start a business, and you pair 
pay fair wages, good wages, and you're like the best boss these people who work for you, natives, have ever got, ever had before. You're just like the best boss, and you create a great product that brings blessing to the economy, the local economy, and blessing to the people. And in all that, you're able to share the gospel through it, and you're trying to build relations. You're, you're able to bring people into your home in a way. Do you see the power in that? And the reason why I'm highlighting that is maybe some of you, when you've heard about missionaries and calls to missions, you thought, well, that's not me. I'm not good on my, on my feet speaking in front of people. And you don't have to be. Maybe you're good with your hands. Maybe you're smart with numbers. You can go overseas and have access in ways that I couldn't have access into some nations, and you could be a blessing to people and give them a, kingdom, a, a, a glimpse of the kingdom of God like I can't. Maybe that would be you. And I would pray that God would raise up a number of us to go overseas and to be a blessing and to use that as an opportunity to not only demonstrate the gospel, to, but to proclaim the gospel also. So God has set you apart to do your work to do many things, but at least three things is to display his glory. Number two, the good of all people. And three, discipleship of all people. So let me, let me land the plane, okay? How do you have the power to believe or do any of this, guys? Well, here's something to remember. Because of the gospel, no job is better than another job. What, what I mean by that, because of the gospel... No job will make you more pleasing or more accepted to God than another. Isn't that good news? God's not like, man, I just really like Sam. And the rest of you I just tolerate. Because Sam's doing my work. No, no, no. God is pleased with you. It's just the way you do it. And because of the gospel, because you are unconditionally accepted despite your amazing sin and terrible sin, he loves us and he accepts us and he pursues us. We have then the freedom to engage in all kinds of work, spectacular and ordinary work, with joy and purpose, and not feel like our whole life is hanging on it. Do you guys, are you tracking me? You've got to hear this. This is like the last, I'm, I'm done, so like, you've got to track with me. Because of the gospel, you can do the spectacular or the ordinary and do it with freedom and joy because you know you are unconditionally and lavishly loved. And God is not going to love you more or less because you do something cooler in society or more reputable or, or not. Isn't that freeing? And so therefore, you can have seasons where you're, doing, you're being a barista to, the, barista? barista to the glory of God. And it's okay, and God can be pleased with you, and, and God can use you, and, and you can also do other things that you may not be in your wheelhouse or in your zone. And it's also so, such good news that because of Jesus' finished work on the cross, you can truly rest. And even when you're done with the hard work week, you can rest on a Sabbath and you can just say, you know what, God, even though my work isn't complete and it was insufficient and it was mundane, you've completed the work and you're pleased with me and I can just rest in that. Some, some weeks I feel like I just I can't do enough work and I'm not finishing all the things I want to do. And even then I can just feel and rest in God's kindness towards me in his favor. And because of his perfect work, guys, Jesus, Jesus' work, you do not have to validate yourself. You don't have to be better than other people. You don't have to have the best job. And because of his Holy Spirit, you can work supernaturally in everything you do. And maybe you're in a job that you don't fit in. Hey, you have the Holy Spirit. He can help you do anything, even if you're not gifted normally for that. 
you have the Holy Spirit and you have Jesus' perfect work and you have the Father shining upon you and with favor. And so, all people's church, imagine if we took this call seriously. Imagine if every business we were at, we were just shining the light and doing it unto Jesus as our boss and that we were doing it with all of our hearts and we're giving people a display of who God is and we were using it as a missionary outpost. Can you imagine what we could do over the years as we continue to grow and make more disciples and as we start more churches? Can you imagine what the Twin Cities could be like? This is so ordinary and yet so extraordinary. See, in every single case, it's not extraordinary that much. But can you imagine a whole movement of lots of churches doing that, with all their members doing that, all peppered throughout the Twin Cities? Can you imagine the kind of impact and power that would be? We can do that. We're only six months old. I mean, we can do that over the next few years. We can see a movement throughout the whole Twin Cities and beyond if we are faithful with our work wherever God has placed us. And for any of, you, any of you here who are not following Jesus, you're not trusting Jesus. He is not your everything. Maybe he's just a part of your life that you want him to bless you and help you. Your work will not matter a thousand years from now. Apart from Christ, your work is fleeting. It's like chasing after wind. But if you trust Jesus and he wants you, he's calling you, you can have eternal peace with him and you could have meaningful purpose forever. And you can have that. And let me just set your eyes as I end on Jesus, the greatest worker and the greatest employer, the one who did the greatest work on the cross for us, and that even though we may have all kinds of different job situations, we can all rest in his unconditional kind love towards us. And that one day we will forever be able to work with him with meaningful work, with no toil, forever, with him, face to face. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, I just pray that you would raise up in us, in our church, an army of people who would infiltrate every sphere of society with excellent work, excellent products, beautiful crafts, beautiful music, all pointing to your worth. But God, help us see your worth more. And as we see your worth, we then reflect your worth. We can't do it unless we have a, if we have a small view of you. So God, I ask that you would increase all of us a greater awe of you. And if there's any here who don't know you and work is the drudgery and work is their, or work is their life and that's all that's going to matter, oh God, would you help them trust in your work for them? And all of us here, no matter where we are with Christ, help us trust in your work right now. For those who here are weary and they feel like their, their tails are kicked by work and it's a drudgery, may we just put our rest and hope in your work for us on the cross, Lord. So thank you so much. And I pray that if there's any error in this teaching, Lord, you correct me. But Lord, all that this true, all that is true that I just said, may it transform our lives and not just be something more that we add and know, but something that infiltrates our very being and that we can experience your joy in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen.